You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. From Shakespeare to Schwartz, from Fosse to Alvin Ailey, from Sondheim to Borellis, from McNally to Fay, it happened to the greats, it still happens every day. When lightning strikes, it's the moment you know. When lightning strikes, where you're meant to go, you can stand and shout your This is Gerald Brother, and you are listening to When Lightning Strikes, where we talk about the moment when your proverbial light bulb goes off, the heavens open, the seas part, that wondrous, heart-thumping, tingly, glorious mic drop moment when you discovered you had to be an artist. And today, I'm so thrilled to have Jonah Platt, who is a prolific actor, writer, director, creator, arranger. Uh, He is an actor who has performed on stages around the country. He played Fiero in the Broadway blockbuster Wicked. He was in Hair at the Hollywood Bowl. He was in Floyd Collins, Bear, A Walk on the Moon, Found. He even wrote a musical called The Giver. And if you go to his Instagram, you can watch him sing a beautiful song, Wish, from his musical, The Giver. And um, he recently sang this beautiful song as part of Lincoln Center's Humanity in Concert series. And on television, if that's not enough, some of his TV credits includes Jesus Christ Superstar Live, the Netflix animated series Trolls, The Beat Goes On. He's been in Curb Your Enthusiasm, Parenthood, the series The Office, and he did a beautiful special virtual reading of Leela Butte's The Shape of Things. He joined his brothers, Henry and Ben, to perform in Graduate Together uh, 2020, celebrating the seniors across the world who did not get a graduation this year. So welcome, Jonah. How are you? I'm great after that wonderful introduction. Thank you so much. That's a mouthful, I know. But um, it's really quite extraordinary when I think of the breadth and depth of your passion and your experiences that you've had. How are you doing? Thank you. You're welcome. First of all, how how are you dealing in the midst of what we're going through right now? I see that you're incredibly creative right now, but how are you staying nourished? How are you staying fulfilled? Those are great words, nourished and fulfilled. Um, I I would say there's sort of two sides to my life right now. One is uh, I'm a dad. I'm a relatively new dad. My son is uh, 14 months old. So I'm getting a lot of nourishment from just getting to spend all this guilt-free time with him. Usually when the world is operating at its usual speed, I can always think of something I should be working on uh, and... Because of the way things are now, I don't have to do that, which has been a little bit of a silver lining uh, in, in this situation. So I'm having a great time spending time with him and my wife and just sort of being at home and not always having the voice in my head saying, get back to the computer. Um, and then on the artistic side, I've been lucky to have a couple random things just sort of pop up. Like you mentioned, the Neil LeBute reading, and uh, I got to do the Graduate Together special. I also arranged that piece that we sang uh, and sort of helped produce the the sound of it. So I got to, that took up like two weeks of my time, which is really fun. Um, and uh, I have, you know, 
an, an animation project and a stage musical project that you mentioned, The Giver, which is not done, um, okay. but is approaching the end of what I'll call its working draft after having gone through a couple of iterations and a couple of readings. Uh, and so there's, you know, demos that we're recording now of the new songs that we've rewritten for this draft. So I've got, I'm lucky to have stuff that I can keep working on that just happen to be in good stages of their development uh, where there's good quality work to be put in now and they can continue to be moving forward in this time. And uh, just trying to, you know, not put too much pressure on myself to accomplish too much or put myself out there too much and just try to enjoy what I can. That's wonderful that you're able to take that time for your family and also be so productive um, creatively in that way. I mean, I think having a family is also a, an extension of creativity, but that's so fantastic. And so can we talk about your lightning strikes moment when you knew you had to be an artist or maybe it's a few moments? Yeah. So I'm going to talk, I'm, I'm actually going to answer your question if I may. And from a different angle a little bit because I don't ever remember a time when I didn't love the performing arts and that like that wasn't what I was doing. Literally, there are videos of me at two years old singing My Fair Lady. Um, there's actually a clip of me online. Have, I did a thing for at 54 Below in New York where they do like a throwback thing and I threw it back all the way to that My Fair Lady song at two years old um, and I have the clip of it. Uh, so I've, I've always, it's just always been kind of clear to me I was going to do something in the arts. I, I just didn't know anything else. Um, but the, the, the two moments that, you know, when I heard your prompt, the ones that sort of clicked for me, one was a very small moment. Um, I did all of my early musical theater training and experience was all at this place called the Adderley School for the Performing Arts, which uh, is no longer in LA. I think now they're based in Santa Barbara. But uh, it was this woman, Janet Adderley, who was a, a Broadway performer who opened the school. And I joined, my sister joined, my older sister, Samantha, when she was like 10 or 11. So I joined right after her when I was about seven or eight. And my very first class, we were, our show was going to be a musical review for that age kid, they just did a, a review. And the first song we learned was Corner of the Sky. And I already knew that song very well because my dad had been playing it for me in his car for years. So the first time we sang it all as a group, I kind of riffed a little on this one line and, and added a little thing that I had learned from listening to the recording that was a way we had always sung it. And I'll never forget uh, the teacher Janet turned to me and having heard it and saying, do that. Like, yeah. I saw that, I heard it, it was good, you should do that. And like, being seen in that way and recognized by her and feeling like getting that positive reinforcement in that moment was give me so much confidence and like joy. And I was like, I, I just, from that moment, my confidence continued to build and she continued to really build my confidence over the years, letting me direct shows of other students and always empowering me to do this and that and write original stuff. And, but it all started from that one moment and I'll never forget it because it's sort of like the first brick in the foundation of my confidence as a performer was in that one little moment. That's so um, wonderful. Oh, do yeah. you remember the riff? What the riff was? 
<laughs> yes, I think all it was was, uh, you know, it's rivers belong where they can ramble, eagles belong where they can fly. Just that oh, little extra thing that, you know, John Rubinstein does on the recording, but, you know, the other seven-year-olds in the class weren't doing it. <laughs> I, I think that was it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget it. I love that you were directing, that you, it sounds like you've never been one thing, that you're a creator, you're a storyteller, yet I love how you're a vocal arranger, you know, and you're yeah. a you know, and, and did you, so did you always have the sense that that was going to be part of your pie? That I mean, you have incredible writing credits that you wrote on The Family Guy and, right, Parks and Recreation, Billy on the Street. Um, yeah, I I, uh, I I didn't really decide that I was going to go down the TV writing road until my senior year of college, when actually, funny enough, I wasn't confident enough at that point in my life that I was going to be able to make it as an actor. I wasn't even really thinking about trying it. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a, a bit of a longer story. But at that time where I was confident in was in my writing. And I said, okay, this seems a little more attainable. So I'm going to try to be a TV writer. And I went down that road. And that was sort of where I thought I was going to go for, oh, six, six years out of college was sort of my main focus was going to be TV writing. But the way the universe worked, sort of my path kind of organically led me back into performing to the point where performing took on the biggest focus in my life. And I realized that what I really wanted to do as a writer was just focus on my own projects and not be a staffed writer going sort of through that TV rat race. Um, so I keep sort of the performing in the forefront. And then when I'm not performing, I'm able to focus in on the writing stuff. So they, they work in harmony together now. So when did you sort of decide, okay, I have to be a performer? Do you mind mm. how, or if it's too long? Yeah, no, this, this was sort of the second, the second uh, moment I wanted to mention to you. Okay. Uh, when I did Hair at the Hollywood Bowl, uh -huh. uh, this was summer of 2014. Up until that point, between 2008 and 2014, I wasn't acting a ton. I had gotten the opportunity to jump into a staged reading of the musical Bear that you mentioned in the intro because yeah. the guy who was playing Jason for that stage reading had dropped out. And a friend of mine from the Adderley School days, who I hadn't seen in a long time, but they needed somebody and he was already involved. And he said, you should call up this guy. I remember Jonah. He's like the perfect guy for this role. I remember he, he's just the right type. So they called me up. I did a little audition for the kid who was directing it. And I say kid, cause he's even younger than me. It was, we were all in our early twenties putting this thing on together. Um, and I got that part. And then that show ended up growing into the full, you know, fast forward four or five years later, we did a full on like official LA revival of bear that is really beloved. And there's a lot of clips on the internet that have a ton of views. People really keep finding yeah. and loving that show. Um, but it was sort of like, with that, we, we had our own little rep company, this group of 20-somethings, and we did Spring Awakening together. We did um, American Idiot together. We did a couple iterations of Bear together. And as those were starting to go every, you know, nine months or whatever it was, my confidence was starting to build until the point where I did Floyd Collins 
And that was another big kind of boost. And I got to, that was a dream show for me to be in. And then hair came around and I saw online that they were doing on big ensemble auditions. I knew it was a big ensemble. A lot of my friends were going in and I went in and auditioned for the ensemble and came out with a principal role. Uh, and I was the only non-celebrity to have a principal role. And throughout that process in rehearsals and doing the shows, that was a really big moment for me where I looked around and was like, oh, I belong here. And I I should be doing this and I, I should be confident in myself because I've got what it takes. I, you know, I'm seeing these celebrity actors and actresses and I'm just as good as they are. And uh, in some cases, I, you know, I felt like I had a leg up on them in some ways because my I worked a little bit harder because I kind of had to. And I felt like I really wanted to prove myself in that situation. So doing that show was really a big, big moment for me uh, where I sort of shifted my focus to I can really do this as a career. And I really will be kicking myself if I stop at this point because I know I can hack it with these guys. Isn't that wonderful how you can shift, you know, and how you can be in a situation that can inspire you like that? And how, how much, how long after did, did your Broadway debut come? And can you talk about when you got the news that you were cast? Yes, it was not, it was not long after. So this was, you know, uh, July of 2014, I did hair. And by August of 2015, I was doing Fiero. So, um, and I, I think hair had a lot to do with it. Um, I remember I was driving to meet my then girlfriend, now wife, for lunch in Beverly Hills at a restaurant that has sadly been closed down, uh, but was my, it was called Cabbage Patch. And we used to go there all the time. It was my favorite spot. And I was almost there. And I got the call from my agent in New York, David Kalodner, to tell me that I had the offer for Fiero. And I had to like pull over. And I was so excited I was freaking out and it was great that I got to walk, you know, one minute later into the restaurant and celebrate basically with, with Courtney. And, uh, it was just, that was definitely the most thrilling piece of news I've ever received, certainly in my career. Um, and it was a wonderful moment that I'll never forget. Isn't it wonder? I, I, for people who might not know your, your wife is, um, she's also a performer, right? She was on one of the finalists of, uh, so you think you can dance and that's uh, right. She was, uh, t- she was top four in her first <laughs> season, which was season four, which was sort of the peak of that, of that show. And then she came back twice as an all-star. Uh, so she's, and we met doing hair together. Um, which was an, an, an extra reason if it wasn't already a very special thing for me that made it enormously special. That's how you met. So what a gift. Yeah. Oh my God. It was, it was the best two weeks of my whole life. That's so wonderful. Is it hard to put into words how playing Fiero changed you? That show is so beloved. Um, it's, it, it did. I wouldn't say it didn't change a ton for me. Um, I I really felt like I was ready for it. I, I would say, what it changed for me is it, it, it obviously, you know, once you have that Broadway credit, it kind of changes the level that you're at in the public eye and in the eye of the people in the industry. You sort of get to have that little check mark next to your name. Um, that to me is the biggest change, just sort of getting entree into that level of, of the industry. 
has by far been the biggest and hugest change. Um, I've always loved interacting with fans, um, whether it was, you know, a friend's little sister after a show in middle school or the fans at the stage door of Wicked. I've always gotten a lot of pleasure out of connecting with people in that way. So I love that aspect of Wicked. You know, the Broadway.com asked me to do these video blogs backstage, and I was super happy to get to do that. That was so fun. Mm-hmm. And I love doing the stage door and hearing from all the fans on on the internet. Because as you say, Wicked is so beloved. It was such a great first Broadway show to walk into because it's just got this whole uh ecosystem behind it of people who love it and keep going to see it and it's got all this mystique and prestige and it's running so well so you just get to sort of come in and do your thing and the people who are in it on stage and off are so terrific so it was really such a warm welcome to the broadway community i know you said you grew up in los angeles but did you come to new york to see do you remember one of the first broadway shows you ever saw Yes. Yes. So I was very lucky. Uh, my, my parents took us to see everything. So here in LA, I mean, everything that came through to the Pantages, which is the big house for all the the national tours, we got to see so much stuff and they took us to, you know, small things, big things, opera, whatever. But in New York, yes, we went to New York a lot. I have family in New York who we would often visit. And my parents had used to live in New York. They love New York. Um, they actually moved to LA when my mom was pregnant with me. Um, Yeah. So my older sister was born in New York and my dad went to law school in New York. And we spent now we spend a ton of time in New York. My whole family spends a ton of time there. Um, But uh, one of the first shows that I remember seeing, I don't know if it was the first on Broadway, but one of the very early ones when I was a young kid for sure was Fiddler on the Roof. I don't know which revival it was, but I remember I was so bored that I was crawling around on the floor, like playing with the feet of my great uncle and my parents and my sister who were there with me because I was antsy and bored. (laughs) (laughs) I, I loved seeing, um, both online and the graduate concert, the concert that just occurred. You sing with your brothers. I saw you, um, sing, uh, uh, Beautiful song, um, Hebrew Sa'avat Olam. Am I saying Sa'avat Olam, yeah. I'm of the tribe, so I should know how to pronounce this. You, I love you were very close. That was, okay. that was good enough. I love seeing that. Um, did you grow up performing together as a family? Oh, yeah. So we're, we're known in our circle as the Von Platts. <laughs> and uh, we would sing together. I mean, we still do. We sing at every family, big family event. So every bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, wedding. And that's not just my nuclear family, but like the whole extended family. The thing is like you do songs for the person whose special event it is. So we grew up always doing that kind of stuff together. And then like our biggest pastime at home was putting on shows. So there's just, you know, so many memories and so many home movies of me and my siblings and my cousins, if they were visiting or we were hanging out, putting on shows. And a lot of them we were were original, which is where I got a lot of my early writing and directing work. Ah. Um, and uh, some of them, you know, were musical reviews or, or our versions of musicals that existed, but constantly putting on backyard musicals and living room musicals and singing together all the time. All, all four of my siblings are wonderful singers. 
That's fantastic. Do you mind sharing one that stands out, whether it's an original or one you did? Well, the the first thing that pops into my head is actually not something I did with my siblings, but something I did for school. Every time I had a school project, I would obviously, I would write a show. You know, if you had to do some sort of, if they give you any leeway, you know, make a a diorama or do whatever it was, I would always like, can I just write a show? Um, So I remember I did one. I don't remember the context or why, but it was in fourth or fifth grade and it was called Leo on the Reels. And it was about, it, had, it was like my play on like Titanic, but somehow like tying it in to some biblical thing. I went to a Jewish day school and I did some like Leonardo DiCaprio play on a biblical story. And it was called Leo on the Reels. And I remember like I, I can picture in my head the program that I printed that had like Leo's face on top of like a clip art background or something. Oh, that's so great. As I was thinking about with graduate, graduate together, how the the mix of songs you did were so seamless and very. Thank you. You're welcome, and you put that together. Right? How did you choose the songs? Because they really felt so relevant. Thank you. So I've I've done a lot of medleys over the last couple years. Excuse me. Uh, I've done a lot of medleys over the last couple of years and have sort of developed what is my process. So I, I once I we got this opportunity, it was great. I was able to just sort of do what I always do, which is start by, you know, we, they asked us, will you do a graduation mashup thingy? Great. So we started by making a list of like the most obvious graduation hits, which sort of right off the bat, you know, the Green Day song, Good Riddance. Uh, in my life by the Beatles, mm-hmm. pomp and circumstance, those kind of jumped out right away. On the vitamin C song, um, graduation, uh, those three was like bam, 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 easy. Then we sort of started racking our brain a little bit more. We did some googling. We looked at um, like some Billboard charts to like remember. Okay, what song? Because we wanted it to be relevant to. Uh, this particular senior class. So we wanted to make sure there was something, some stuff representative of the last couple years, stuff that would really speak to them as well as to a wider audience. We felt like we had the adults already. Um, but that's where, you know, the Maroon 5 song came in and um, the um, the Congratulations Post Malone song. And then Forever, I think that's almost everything, Forever Young uh, also just came, I guess, as we were talking and you make that list and the list was actually much longer to start with. And then as I start piecing it together, it, it starts to become clear, like what isn't going to fit, what's going to be too much, what's not going to work as well as we had maybe thought initially. And then there was also like a clearance thing. They didn't want too many songs, which ended up working great. Cause always, you know, in some ways less is more. So I think we ended up with just the right amount yeah, and it worked out perfectly that we sort of, it, it, it wasn't what we set out to do, but it organically sort of fell into three big chunks, which allowed each of us to take the lead in a certain area and then just f- flesh it out from there. Did you want to talk about The Giver? I l- would love to talk about The Giver. Okay. I love uh, talking about The Giver. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about The Giver. Um, you're writing. Yes, we've been, I uh, am working with a collaborator named Andrew Resnick who uh, I've known, we've known each other since we were toddlers. Our parents met in college. And yeah. he, he and I have collaborated musically in many different ways over the years. We played in bands together in high school, first a band in ninth grade, 
that I was kicked out of and then a band in like 11th and 12th grade that was actually very good and we played all the clubs around LA and if we didn't go to stupid college maybe my life would look very different um but we've done that and then we did um I formed a group called One Night Stand where we performed hour-long improvised musicals. And we oh. did that. That was a blast. That's the most fun thing I've ever done. And we did oh. that at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival for a couple years. We did it in the in New York Musical Theater Festival in LA. We did all over it. He was the pianist for that. It was like the most, he was like our MVP because his ability to improvise beautiful, real show-sounding music was is like nothing I've ever seen. I could never find someone who could do it as well as him, which is why once that group kind of ended and college ended and he was in New York and I was in LA, the group kind of stopped because I wasn't going to do it without Andrew. So anyways, flash forward to now, uh, after having done, you know, basically we improvised a hundred musicals together and we, Uh. one day we're like, let's write one down. Um, And we were looking for one to do. And Andrew was the one who came up with the idea to do The Giver. I don't know where it came from for him. Honestly, I I should probably ask him. But I remember when he brought it to me, with good reason, he was like, this is going to be a good musical, I think. It's, you know, there's a great story, great themes. And I thought that was cool. And I loved that. But then there was something else that really appealed to me. And this is sort of my blessing and my curse. And all of my original projects, I'm always looking for the, what about this is something you haven't seen before? Which at times makes my projects harder to sell because they're different. Um, but I think is what makes them appealing. Um, but what I loved about the giver is that we were going to be able to use music as part of the storytelling in a way that is different than every other musical and every other musical you take for granted that there's going to be music and there's going to be singing and people are going to break into song because it's a musical. Just how, cause you suspend your disbelief in our show. Uh, the Giver takes place in a world with uh, basically no variance at all. Uh, there's no weather. There are no animals. There's no color. There are no differences. There's like no choice. There's no uh, heavy emotion. And so when people sing in our show, they're only able to sing if they have unlocked a deeper level of emotion not available to the other people in their world. So there are characters in our show who never sing at all. There are some who sing a lot. There are some who sort of quote unquote gain the ability to sing as the show goes on. Um, and others who you only hear in a dream or a fantasy singing. So I loved that conceit that when he pitched me the idea of the giver, that's where my brain went. And, uh, I, I, I hope when you're watching it, and I think this has been the experience, you're not really going to realize that's what's going on. You're not going to see, you know, the matrix code. Um, but <laughs> if you went home and thought about it later, you would realize, oh my gosh, you're right. Like only that guy was singing for a while. And then the mom never really sang until the end. Um, so I hope it'll be all organic and woven. I think we've accomplished that. But I just, that that idea of not even taking for granted that there's going to be music and singing and making it for a real narrative purpose. That just really excited me. Um, and that's, it's been a couple of years now in development. We've done, like I said, uh, a couple of rounds, big drafts, uh, a couple of readings. We have a third collaborator named Martine Zimmerman, who is a, a TV writer and a playwright. And um, together, the three of us have done like three or four drafts now. And this latest draft is 
I, I, th- I think we've really kind of locked in the story now. We took we went down a bunch of different roads. It was actually a very tricky adaptation because the book, The Giver, is based on a book, Lois Lowry's best-selling novel, over yeah. 10 million copies sold all around the world. Um, in, yeah. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. Um, it's, you know, it's read, it's read a lot in schools, fourth, fifth, sixth grade kind of kids. So a lot of people know it, but it was a tricky adaptation because the book is very heavy on theme and atmosphere and world building, uh, but not very heavy on plot. There's actually not a ton that happens. And like the first, it's, it's a short book. It's young adults, maybe, I don't know, uh, 180 pages, let's say. And like the first 60 are kind of set up. It's a lot of setting up the world and the situation of who this main character is and how things work there. So we had to manufacture a lot. Uh, and, you know, draft one took us down one road that, you know, A, B, and C worked, but D through Z didn't work. Then the next draft, we got A through L, but the rest didn't work. And so I think we finally now on this draft we're in, we, we've got almost the whole alphabet, which is certainly enough at this point in a musical's life to, to move it to the next stage once we've locked in these demos. So I'm really excited to finally be able to push this to the next level. And once you know the world gets back to normal, hopefully you'll see this on a regional stage sooner than later. That's so wonderful. I love that you do musical improv. I'm a big... Um, I studied at UCB and I know Rumpelteaser. I don't know if you know... Um, and I love it's it's astounding to me how they create these full fledged musicals in you know, on the spot. So that's what yeah, you, yeah. I, I loved it. It's of everything I've ever done. It's the thing that that was able to encapsulate all the things I love to do all at once in one moment. Because I'm I'm writing, I'm songwriting, I'm acting, I'm doing comedy, I'm doing drama, I'm directing. Uh, I'm producing. It literally was all happening uh, in in the moment in front of an audience every night. And because it's a different show every night, like when we would do it at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, we had fans coming back five, six times. People were recognizing us around town, which is great, not for the notoriety, but just that like so many people were enjoying what we were doing and loving us and wanting to come enjoy it again and again. That was such an awesome feeling. And the the energy in the audience is just, there's nothing like it because at first everybody's kind of nervous for you. And then once they see you've got it and it's going to be amazing, they just have the ride of their lives because you're just, even though as as funny and engaging and wonderful as the show is, the fact that you're doing essentially a magic trick the entire time in front of them yeah. just blows people's minds. So it's, it's, and it's just so fun to do. There's just nothing more fun than, than making up a musical. It's like, you know, what I was doing as a kid, just putting on shows. There you go. And I love that. Um, and for, like I said, people can hear you sing one of the songs, the wish on your Instagram, right. As part of, um, Lincoln Center's humanity and concert series. How yes. That? Um, yeah. That that sh- song, sadly, right now is not in the show anymore. I love that little piece. It's one of my favorite little things. It, it used to be a section of a song that's definitely still in the show and has sort of been in it for a while, but this section didn't quite fit anymore. Uh, so we had to pull it out. I don't know if it's going to end up going back in, which is why I felt comfortable posting it online. I generally haven't really posted anything from the show online because I'm letting it have its development course before I introduce anything. Yeah. But um, it's one of my favorite lyrics 
that I've written. And I love Andrew. So the way Andrew and I work is I write all the lyrics and then Andrew does sort of like the foundational music and composing. And then we, as we say, zhuzh the music together. And I do a lot of the vocal arranging. But this was one, there's a couple of times where it was like really Andrew sort of came with a fully formed musical idea for this one. And my lyric, I thought was really strong. So th- it was just a really a special one. And I got asked by uh, my friend Anna, who is working with Lincoln Center to perform something for this Humanity in Concert series and to dedicate it to somebody. And th- this song just popped into my mind um, because I knew personally, you know, my sister, this is actually today is my sister's 30th birthday wow. and and was supposed to be her wedding, oh. which was sadly not happening. So... I, I, you know, I know. Thank you. So it's a bummer. And I just know that there are so many other people who I've been seeing, you know, dealing with these disappointments of the things that they thought they were going to get to be doing and not doing. And a lot of people having to celebrate birthdays in these crazy new ways to feel special. That's not what you want to be doing. And, and I thought this song, there's just a little something magical about it and the magic of a wish, uh, not just a birthday wish, but a wish for whatever you desire you have right now. And I felt like it could tap into the feelings of, of the world at the moment. So it seemed just like a nice fit. And I was glad to get to share something that I love so much with the world. That's so beautiful. Have you been um, connecting at all with um, Lois Lowry? You know what? I've actually never met or spoken to her. Um, Yeah. My, my dad, Mark, who is producing our show, was his now biggest job of this process was going to meet with Lois and convince her to give us the rights. We actually, Andrew and I had the idea for the show a long time ago. I want to say eight years ago, but we could not get the rights. We asked my dad, we look into the rights, see if they're available. And she would not budge and was not interested in making the, the first class theatrical rights available. And I, we believe it was because there was a movie coming out. And once the movie came out, she was more open again to discussing the rights. And so my dad got on a plane and went to Maine and uh, met with Lois in her cabin and convinced her that he would protect her beloved property as he had for Gregory Maguire's beloved property, Wicked. Mm-hmm. And um, now we've got what I think is going to be a really special show. Do you want to talk about working with Leo Labute? I didn't get to really work with Neil. He appeared live with us for the reading and was sort of answering uh, viewers' questions and comments throughout the performance. And then we all did a Q&A panel together at the end, Neil and the performers. Uh, it was a very unique experience. It's the only thing I've done so far. I'm actually going to be doing another live stream performance in July of a new musical called uh, Walt and Roy about the Disney Brothers that I was just asked to do um, with my old buddy, Payson Lewis, who played opposite me in Bear all those years ago. Uh, now we're going to be back in action, not as lovers, but as brothers. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing that, but because it's it's unique to do, to do the live stream. It's, you know, cracking jokes without laughter and landing, finishing scenes without applause and, you know, uh, not really even getting to look so much at your scene partner because you're reading 
words off a screen or looking into your camera. It's a, it's a definitely a different way of performing, but it was great. I, I mean, I loved getting just to do something. Uh, and my role in that show, I played Philip. If you know the show, he's sort yeah. of the du- the douchey friend of the main yeah. character. Yeah. It's a small show. It's only four characters. And it really yeah. focuses on Adam and Evelyn. But then there's this other couple who gets yes. mixed up with them. Uh, with uh, That's Jenny and Philip. And I love getting to play a douche. Because yeah. I try very hard not to be a douche in my <laughs> normal life. So mm-hmm. when I'm allowed to be one and be funny with it... Uh, it's it's a pleasure. So that was a lot of fun to do. It was a, a great group of people to get to work with. Um, I was really excited to get to work with Katie Rose Clark and uh, yeah. Lena Hall. Um, so it was a, a really uh, rewarding experience and getting to meet Neil and have him be there for the reading. That's was very special. So I, I was yeah. really glad for the opportunity. I love the talk back at the end because you get all that kind of insight because this play is so... Oh, it's like it gets under your skin because it's and it it takes this turn. I'm not going to give it away because you could still see it. That's really fascinating and how people transform. Is there a role you're aching to play? You've done. I love that you were in Floyd Collins and you're Fiero and you're seeing sodomy in hair. Right? You say sodomy. <laughs> really? Yeah. The 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 kind of how how wide ranging. You know, your roles are, but is Thank there you. a part you're, you're welcome. Is there a part you're just dying to play? Like bring it on. So I have two answers to that question. The okay. first is, and this is my answer lately is the roles I'm dying to play are the two roles I currently have in new musicals that are, I'm hoping are going to break through and make it to the big time. Um, and are roles that I'm originating because that's to me is sort of the, the next mountain that I really want to climb is originating a role in a Broadway show. And I've got this role of Davey in a musical called Found that I was doing here in LA that got shut down a little early once COVID happened that I'm hoping it seems will continue to have a life in the future. God willing, if you know, theater exists. Um, The show was really something special and everybody believes in it and the producers love it. And I feel like that will go on. And then the other is a show called A Walk on the Moon that I was I was supposed to have just finished like uh, a week ago um, in New, New Jersey. And we already have our tentative dates set for next spring. So that should happen, God willing. So that's a long way of saying my answer. My first answer to your question is I, I really just want the opportunity to play Marty and Davey uh, and introduce the world to those characters and my version of them. Um, in the revival world, if I was going to do a revival, some roles I really would love to do would be um, George Surratt in Sunday in the Park is, uh, is, a, is a big one I would love to play. Um, I, I would love to play Floyd in Floyd Collins one day. I played Homer yeah. uh, when I was in my 20s, and it'd be fun to play the older brother. And um, I've always wanted to play, uh, Fab- well, not always, but for a long time, I've wanted to play Fabrizio in Light in the Piazza. Oh, yeah. It's a role I love. And then I'll say my number one is probably Hedwig and Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Oh, why Hed- I love those. I love the George, all of it. Why Hedwig? What a great, oh. Oh, man. I love that show. I, 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 there's a couple reasons. One, I mean, I, like I said, my dad took us to see everything. So I saw Hedwig in LA when it was sort of first 
making the rounds years ago when I was probably, I don't know, 12. Um, and I fell in love with it. I'm, I'm like a rock, rock and roller kid. Um, that's what I cut my teeth on. That's what I listened to. I was playing in bands starting when I was like 10 or 11 years old, playing guitar and singing in rock bands. And like I said, we played all, I, by the time I was in high school, I was playing every club in LA, um, rocking out. So that's like my vocal development. My rock side of my voice was sort of the first thing to really, as an adult, that, that got more development even than the sort of the musical theater side when I was a teenager. Um, so I love that aspect of it, that with Head We Get to Rock Out. I love the story. Is very, I'm always moved by it. No matter how many times I see it, I'm emotionally engaged and moved and it makes you feel things and think things. And then I just love the, the way that Hedwig gets to talk to the audience and there's a little bit of improv and there's a real connection and just, yeah. you know, you're there the whole time just connecting with the audience, which as I've mentioned, I, I absolutely love to do. I just, I, and you know, I love that you mentioned found as well. Cause I saw found early, it was at the Atlantic at one point. That's you right. Know. That's where it got its start. And I let Hunter Bells. Yeah. I yeah. love musical. And I always thought, why, how can, you know, what happened to that? So I'm so glad that it's in the, the ether. Why were you kicked out of the band? <laughs> oh, I don't, you know what? I couldn't tell you. They screwed up. Uh, oh, and yeah. a a Andrew really apologized to me okay. after there was like a, there was kind of like a coup. They, they just, uh, there was this one guy in the band who sort of planted the seed that like, we got to get rid of Jonah. And, um, they kicked me out. It was very mean. It was, I was very sad about it. I only asked cause you put it out there and I thought, Oh, I, I'm very curious now by that. Uh, yeah. I, I know. I came up with the name of the band. I was the lead singer. And then I think really this, this bassist just wanted to be more of the front man. Yeah. And he, and he had been there first. And so they sort of, he sort of got everybody else to agree to give me the boot. Yeah. Uh, and that, but then Andrew realized the errors of his ways, and we started our our own band, which was much better as uh, as juniors. Yeah, well, and and you did okay. Oh, I just went. Why George Surratt? What a phenomenal! Oh, I mean the the the, yeah. the part the part is fantastic. It, it's I love the songs that he gets to do. Yeah. Um, there's some of Sondheim's best. That's my favorite Sondheim show. That show it just moves me so much. The, how it's all about, you know, creativity and want, I, I really relate to that feeling of, I want to leave something behind. I want to do something that counts and that struggle to balance everything, to balance, you know, the person you are when you're not being an artist with the need to be an artist, with that desire to create something that counts. And then, you know, I, I think of that line that uh, Marie sings, um, let it come from you, then it will be new. I think about that a lot. Um, and again, that's just sort of believing in yourself and knowing that you and everything you are, you yourself are enough. If you can just be confident in that, which is easier said than done. And it's taken me a lot of years to have that confidence, but um, I think it's very true. That is true. And I celebrate your many hats. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome. It's been such a joy talking to you. Thank you so much for taking my pleasure. Yeah. 
Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. And thank you for having me, Gerald. It still happens every day. When lightning strikes, it's the moment you know. The theme song was written by Tom McGovern. This episode was edited by Kyle Moore. And the talent was booked by Anna Strauss. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.